Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on yet another sunny day here in the capital. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and today, as always, we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First, we're joined by Steve Moore, co-founder and chief executive of Athlete Career Transition, a company which provides a career transition program for retiring elite athletes in order to prepare them for life after their sporting careers. Steve, hello. Hi, Matthew. Great to be with you today. Thank you for coming on the program. Uh, Now, normally we'd get directly into the subject of leadership, but considering the ongoing COVID outbreak, we're going to start there. How has this affected your business? Um, We've been very lucky, to be honest. Um, The business that we set up 10 years ago has always been remote. So we've never had office space. We've never had uh, people in one particular location. So working remotely and um, all of the challenges that that faced, we've been doing that for forever in terms of our business lives. So that hasn't changed in terms of how we operate and how we work and how we operate with our clients. And we're working currently on a number of different projects, particularly around the Olympics. Um, So we're obviously very keenly looking at uh, what was happening with the Olympics and whether that was going to be cancelled or moved moved over a year. Thankfully, it's been moved over a year. So the projects that we were working on with clients who were, were heavily involved in the Olympics or wanted to be, um, they've been extended for a year, so that's been a blessing. Um, a lot of our clients initially paused some of the projects we were working on, didn't cancel them fantastically. Uh, and uh, we've now reignited those projects and we're working again on them. And what that allowed us to do during the, the initial lockdown COVID period um, was to do two things. One, to take stock of our business and have a look at what we were doing, how we were doing it, all of our processes, and to really fine-tune those and streamline them and, and look at some new innovative ways of working, um, but also to focus on a couple of the clients that we wanted to bring on board. So we've been able to bring on two or three new clients through the COVID period, which, uh, again, is quite unusual, and, and we've been very blessed in the fact that the clients that we brought on have, have really taken a leap of faith with us. Mm. They've looked into the future rather than stayed in the present, uh, and we've begun a number of really interesting projects with those guys as well. So thankfully, we haven't been too affected by the lockdown period and the, and the COVID issues that have faced a lot of businesses and, and, and given them some really big challenges. So, so we're, we're, we're in good shape, and we're, and we're really pleased with how we've, how we've handled that period. Now, this is a very interesting idea for, for a business. Uh, one always knows about the, the trope of the famous athlete who spends all of his money, ends up destitute. How did you come up with this idea in the, in the first place? Um, well, it was based on the background of myself and my brother, Andy. Um, we are both former Welsh international rugby players. We were professionals for 10 years plus. Uh, Andy captained Wales. We had great professional sporting careers, and we came to the end of our careers through injury, like uh, a lot of athletes do. Mm-hmm. And we had to go out and find a new career for ourselves. And both of us took different pathways. I became more entrepreneurial. Uh, Andy went into property initially, and then ended up in in finance in the city uh, latterly. And uh, it was really the coming together of the two of us over a couple of beers, talking about our own transitions from sport into business. And um, we then, I think on around about the sixth or seventh beer, decided we were going to set up a business that would 
challenge that and would put together some kind of process that would enable elite sports people who'd operated in um, world-class environments, uh, give them a pathway and a transition, a smooth transition out of that environment into high-performing business environments as well. And mm. over the last 10 years, we've uh, honed the process that we that we put all of our athletes through. We've uh, designed what we think is a really um, uh, strong pathway for them to follow. And, uh, and our business partners buy into that as well. So uh, it's been a it's been a really interesting journey. We've met so many interesting athletes who've got amazing stories to tell um, from all different backgrounds. We we work with Paralympians. We work with with athletes from from all ethnicities as well. And it's amazing to hear their journeys. And there's always a point in time where they come to where there's, there's a, a crossroads, and uh, that's the the defining moment of of them becoming great athletes or just staying as average athletes and, and they push on through and work through all those difficulties and they're the, 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 uh, the DNA that businesses want in people. So we've managed to tap into something that's quite unique, something that is um, very niche uh, and we thankfully have a number of really high profile um, uh, global partners who, who buy into those same values as well. Why can that transition be difficult? There's a number of reasons why it can be difficult, and you know I, I experienced it myself. Um, where you're you're known for one thing, you're known for being. I was known for being a rugby player. You're known for being an Olympian, maybe a rower or a swimmer or a hockey player or whatever it might be. And you've you've done that for 15, 20 years of your life, and that's been your identity. Uh, and what you haven't done is focused on other areas of your life because you've focused on one area becoming elite at that and elite in the extreme, where you put yourself in front of thousands of people in the stadium and millions of people on television uh, under all of that pressure and you don't focus on other areas of your life and when that comes to an end and it can come to an end abruptly you're then looking around for the support mechanisms that you had in sport and they're not there so uh, if you haven't educated yourself um, then you you struggle with, with that aspect of, of trying to find a new career for yourself because getting in the first rung of the ladder Really, you need to have some kind of education behind you. If you have educated yourself, but you don't have um, traditional work experience behind you, you find it, again, difficult to get on the ladder because you don't have that traditional work experience. Mm. And what we try and do is educate our business partners that uh, what an athlete has achieved through their careers in sports and many years of, of a high performance is absolutely transferable into the into the workplace and into high-performing business environments. And one of the things that we get asked quite a lot is, or a statement that is made rather, is that these guys don't have any experience. How can we employ them? And then when you point out that, particularly if you're an Olympian, you go on a four-year cycle to be the very, very best you can be on one particular day in four years' time, and all the planning, the preparation, the detail, the analysis, the dedication, the resilience that goes behind achieving your goal of being the best you can be in four years' time, they are all transferable skill sets that businesses recognize. So we go through an education process with our business partners, and we also educate our athletes that these are skill sets that they, ha they actually have, and they can walk into an office, a boardroom, with confidence that they can actually perform in a different environment with those skill sets. 
Now, we are here to discuss the concept of leadership, a concept uh, I am very sure that you're incredibly familiar with. Uh, mm-hmm. I always like to start this part of the uh, conversation off by asking the same simple question. What does the word leader mean to you? That's a very good question. And um, I've been fortunate enough to work in high-performing environments within sport um, over many years and work with many different leaders with different styles. Um, and I think the one thing that encompassed the, the leaders that were successful that I worked under, I'm not talking about coaches, uh, uh, captains, and, and leaders of organizations within, within sport. Um, the one thing that they had was was a vision and a, a, an absolute belief in that vision. And they then set about putting the right people around them to help them achieve that vision. So I think vision is one of the key words that I would use within leadership. Um, and I think probably the other word that I would use is uh, determination. Uh, every leader that I that I know that's been successful has had a huge amount of determination to achieve their goals. So there are two probably key words that I would pick out of what I would want to see in a leader that I'm either working with for or trying to aspire to be. And how would you describe your day-to-day leadership style? I am someone who wants to empower people. I feel that the best way to get them the the most out of people is to empower them to use their own skills and attributes to the best of their ability. So I'm definitely not autocratic. I'm very inclusive. Um, I firstly want to be the best at what I can do. If I'm the best at what I can do, people can look at me and say, right, okay, well, that's someone I can definitely follow uh, and I can believe in. Um, but once I have that belief from someone in, in what who I am and what I'm trying to achieve, I want them to be the best they can be as well and, and to, to draw all of those skills and, and attributes out of themselves that will help them be, to the, be the best they can be every single day that they're doing whatever it is we're, we're working on. So, yeah, I would say I'm, I'm very inclusive and an empowering leader. And where would you say you derived that leadership style from? Did you have a particular role model or have you been formed more by your experience? Uh, I would say... A lot of it is my personality, um, how I've been brought up. Um, my, my father was a very strong role model in, in my life uh, growing up. Uh, he was a very successful businessman, uh, ended up being um, president of a multinational corporation. And um, I, I watched him for many, many years and how he operated. And uh, he was very personable and he, he made people feel great when they were with him. Uh, and that was something I always wanted to do was to make people feel really good about themselves when they were, when they were with me. And in that respect would get, I would get the best out of them. So I think it's ingrained in my personality just by my experience of growing up with someone who had those particular skills uh, as a leader. Uh, And I've tried to draw on all of the experiences I've had, particularly in, in elite sport and the leaders that I've worked with in elite sport. And I didn't get on with all of them, but I, I recognize lots of characteristics and traits and, um, and how they operated, uh, recognized that they, they, they were absolutely excellent and outstanding and, and things that I could draw on and little bits that I could attach to my leadership style uh, along the way. So it's, I would say it's 
a lot of it's experience um, and, and something that I've developed and continuing to develop um, uh, as I grow older. Now, unfortunately, our time together has drawn to its close. But before I let you go, what does the next 12 months have in store for athlete career transition? Uh, it's a very exciting period, actually. As I mentioned earlier, we've, um, we've got an Olympics, hopefully next summer, that we're working towards with a number of our clients. Um, so we're, we're currently working with athletes from, I think, off the top of my head, around about 18 or 19 different countries across the globe who are going to be competing at those Olympics and looking to place them with some of our clients after um, after the Olympics next summer. Uh, we've got, as I said again, we've got two or three new clients that we've brought on board over the um, over the last six months that we're beginning new projects on. Um, we're doing a lot of work in the States at the moment, so we're, we're working with the NFL very closely. We're working with Major League Baseball, Major League Soccer. Um, so, yeah, we've got a lot of exciting projects uh, in the pipeline, and, and we're looking to grow. So we're, we're, we're very fortunate in that respect. Well, Steve, I'd like to thank you very much for coming on the program today. Uh, it's been a pleasure to have you. And, of course, we'll have to have you again at some point in the future. But I think all that's left to say at this point is goodbye. Thank you, Matthew. It's been a pleasure. That was Stephen Moore, co-founder and chief executive of Athlete Career Transition. And now, if you haven't heard it before, is Scott Challoner's exclusive interview with Sir Jeff Hurst. And now, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, we extend a very warm welcome to a special guest in Sir Jeff Hurst, who joins us on the program today. Um, Sir Jeff, good morning. Uh, Good morning. How are you? Very good, thank you. It certainly is a uh, wonderful uh, day for it, isn't it? It is. The weather's pretty good at the moment. I hope it might last. Absolutely. It is certainly after a storm. And um, speaking of storms, actually, I'd like to start with just a hypothetical scenario. If we imagine if we fast forward two years, Sir Jeff, let's imagine it's December 2022 and it's the World Cup final and England are there. We could be playing defending champions France. We could be playing the Germans, anybody. And England are 2-0 up in the 90th minute. So victory is all but guaranteed. And Harry Kane, with a brace to his name already, is brought down in the penalty area. So he has the opportunity to make history by emulating yourself and becoming only the second ever player to score a World Cup final hat-trick. Would you honestly want him to bury it or would you prefer him to fluff his lines? I would want him to bury it. Um, I've asked that question, again, that question asked a bit. Um, I've had a good run uh, with this record and goodness me, it's nearly 60 years, I guess, if, if uh, we're looking at 2022. No, I'd want him to bury it. A, a for him, he's a fantastic player. Uh, tremendous goal scorer, and if anybody I'd like to um, repeat what I achieved, uh, it would be someone like Harry, who was a f- fantastic professional with, with Spurs in England. So absolutely, and I want England to do well. I mean, I I'm want England to be successful. I, I'm an England supporter. I'm a football supporter, and I just I really want the country to do well in in anything in, in all sports, and particularly in my sport. So I want up wanting to bury it, and I'll be absolutely. I would be as delighted as anybody in, in the country um, if, if he can achieve that. But, but more importantly, that England England have achieved what we achieved all those years ago. And it's important that the team uh, do it as opposed to Harry doing it individually. Mm. And that's how I felt about my, uh, my achievements, about the team being successful. Whether I got two or three in one sense is, is uh, I wouldn't say immaterial, but it's about the team winning. It's all about the team. Mm. 
Exactly. Consideration of the wider team is a cornerstone of leadership, which is, of course, what the Leaders' Council is all about, recognising that and promoting that for the future. But if we sort of flash back 54 years to that moment in 1966, when you were bearing down on goal, I understand that a lot of people always ask you the question about whether you actually knew there were people on the pitch at the time. And there's quite a bit of a joke about that. But there's something else that I'm actually interested in. I understand we all know what happened. The ball nestled in the top corner. England won 4-2 and lifted the World Cup. But you've often described that as being a mishit finish sometimes before, haven't you? Yes, I think people... Um, I, I've, I, I recall exactly what's amazing. I can recall exactly what I was thinking. Um, at that moment, obviously a crucial moment in, in the game towards the end of the game. I knew the game was nearly finished. I, as the ball came to me initially, I was actually, with my back to goal, I was actually looking at the referee uh, 10 yards from me in the middle of the park and he was waving, at the whistle in his mouth, but waving play on with both arms, indicating quite clearly, of course, that the game was nearly finished. So when I got to the edge of the box, I'm, I now think of the game is nearly finished. I'm thinking, is the game's nearly finished? I'm now going to whack this ball with everything I've got left. But I'm thinking if it goes beyond the beyond the sand into the crowd by the time the ball boy gets it back to uh, hand still Kowski, the German keeper by that time surely the game has got to be over but as I always jokingly say uh, I miss hit it and it and it flew in but I was thinking about wasting time not so much about uh, but certainly what I was going to do which which sorry, I was going to hit it as hard as I possibly could after those two hours and it just goes to show sometimes that hit and hope taking a punt can sometimes be the way forward because I think it shows that in any form of leadership, be it in sport or in business, you can't go sometimes without taking risks. Absolutely, yes, absolutely. Yes, I mean, I wasn't in that position with risk in a sense because the game was unfinished, but that that philosophy is right. You're just going to, uh, there's an element of, of, of risks, uh, of making it, but it's going to be a control on that risk, not, not stupid risks in, in mm. all walks of life an element of maybe doing something that you're not too sure about. But sometimes in life, you've got to have a go. You can't get be successful in terms of long-term leadership if you're just always sitting on the fence and not taking any chances. I don't think that's where the great leaders will get to by having that kind of philosophy. You've got to move forward. And the last time that you actually joined us on the Leaders' Council podcast and spoke with my colleague, Jonathan White, uh, Sir Jeff, was back in February, of course. And that was a point where we knew a little bit about COVID-19, which was looming, but that was before it really took hold in the UK and really turned our world upside down. And before that, this summer was meant to be all about the England national team once again, who were going to the European Championships. But that's in a way now being replaced by the National Health Service and we've been supporting the health service and applauding their efforts and we're hanging out thank you banners displaying drawings of rainbows very much in the same vein that you'd see the George Cross adorning most households during a major tournament year. Do you feel there are parallels between the sense of national unity that we've discovered during this time and the spirit of 1966? Oh absolutely particularly the the recognition of the NHS with what they're doing and I think it was a great idea uh, during that period where they asked everybody to stand outside their houses and clap and congratulate the NHS for what, what they were going through. And I think it's, it's been criticism in the past, of course, the NHS on how it's run up with there's enough, enough funding for it and, and so on. But really, we begin to realise during these turbulent times how absolutely vital and uh, important it is to have a, a health service that works efficiently and to see individually the, the amount of people who are injured almost every day on the t- 
terrible circumstances they were having to work under with with masks and so on, and and also into what was also for me fantastic. All these people from different different countries all over the world that were working in our country uh, with the same you you union to to be successful and uh, help people to survive uh, COVID. Uh, very heartwarming. And I think that kind of feeling, I, I probably, as a player in 66, I probably wasn't aware at that time of the unity of the country. I've learned that over the years when I talk to people um, who were about 66 and they will tell you what a great day it was and where they were, remembered exactly what they were doing and the fantastic stories. So that identified then as that great unification of the country, 30 million plus viewers, the biggest view, TV viewing audience we've had. So today, um, it's certainly uh, through this pandemic and the NHS has been absolutely magnificent and every single person, uh, some very fantastic and heartwarming stories of how they're dealing with this unbelievably uh, difficult situation from a health perspective. Uh, fantastic. So that was really heartwarming to get out and cheer and clap on the balcony Um for the NHS, fantastic. Mm, certainly inspiring what we've been seeing uh, from the uh, the front line as well. And flashing back just to 1966 again, just from a leadership point of view, um, the manager that made all of that possible and oversaw yourself and your teammates on the, the road to the World Cup was, of course, Sir Alf Ramsey. What sets somebody like him or Ron Greenwood apart from other coaches? Because I understand that both men had a profound impact on you, not just as a player, but also as a person as well. Well, I think that I was very fortunate. <laughs> You're talking about coincidence and the fortunate in your life to be at the time when I was physically at my my best during those those, those years. Um, born earlier or later, I wouldn't have been around uh, physically enough, and clever enough, and technically good enough to, to be around to be a good player. But at that time, I'm involved with arguably the greatest coach um, we've seen in this country, Harry Redknapp who's been around a long time, would still say he is, is the best coach he has worked with. And this is, that's 50 years having been in the business plus. And then moving on to, to having a, a national level, a great manager. Uh, and the two coincided in a sense because Ron Greenwood always always said that and felt that he, as a, as a, a coach of a League One club, uh, or Premier League as it is today, it's, it's important you prepare the and teach and coach the players to be to prepare to be playing in the best company, playing for England. And so he prepared us to be playing for England. And then Alf Ramsey knew the players to pick. Um, discipline was his big skill. Making sure those players were disciplined um, in the right formation. Uh, so the two combined move from one to the other. Uh, how, how can you possibly be as, as fortunate um, as, as I was? It was just uh, amazing. So I think Ron was. I think there are two different aspects of football in terms of leadership. You've got a, you've got a, a coach who's a team coach who's a teacher, effectively. Then you've got the other kind of character who's, who's a manager who manages people. May not be quite so good technically on the coaching aspects, but by that stage, a wrong reason of passing a coach person to Alf, who then managed from a discipline point of view, because you're managing people from the whole country. You're not just managing a club. Managing people, uh, different characters, and, and all over the, the country is, is slightly more demanding job in that respect. So you've got to hone that lot of all over different characters, strengths, players into a unit to play for uh, to represent England. 
himself. Ramsey was, was very good at that. His discipline was was fantastic. So the com- combination of the two, uh, you can say I can't be as I'm so blessed to be as fortunate as I was to come across these two fantastic uh, uh, people in my life, in my in my football life. And I suppose for every Sir Alf Ramsey and Ron Greenwood um, as well that you have worked with, there are also coaches out there that one might work with that perhaps might not get the best out of players during their, um, of course, their peak. But just, of course, just but just as much as you can learn from, of course, coaches that do get the best out of players, you can learn as much from less effective leaders as you can from good ones as well, because that experience can ultimately mould you as a person, can't it? Oh yes, I think it, yes, I think leadership is important and coaching and teaching is important. Um, and, and the great teachers and coaches and managers ha- have that skill. Sometimes it's an innate skill in, in management. They have it. But I think um, you you can learn, if you're central enough, to learn from people who are uh, teaching you or coaching you. It's not the right way to go about teaching you or coaching or managing you. You can learn uh, from that. If you're a player, you can learn what you think is a good coach, what you think is a good manager, which you can take into your career after playing into uh, coaching or management. So you can learn as much from people making mistakes. You can learn also from making your own mistakes. Mm. You can do something in the past that think well, like that was a really stupid thing to do and I'll make sure I'm not going to do that again. And it, it is important in all of life. You learn from your mistakes. People will make mistakes. Uh, young people will make mistakes. But it's learning. It's the silly people who make mistakes and don't learn from it, continue making those same mistakes throughout their life and becoming maybe unsuccessful throughout their, their career. Mm, completely understand exactly where you're coming from. I think it's almost impossible to become an effective leader in our profession without having that learning curve of making mistakes and learning from them exactly. Um, during your Absolutely. conversation um, with Jonathan back in February, um, Sir Jeff, I know that you and him discussed at length some of the big inspirations and influences on you throughout your career and throughout adulthood. But I understand that your love for football and obsession with the sport actually started a lot earlier even if you were toing and fro between football and cricket somewhat at the time. I read somewhere that during your teenage years, you were once fined one pound for disturbing the peace after consistently kicking a football into a neighbour's garden. Is that true? <laughs> Not many people know that, as the saying goes. Yeah, that's absolutely true. When, in, in those uh, medieval days, you, there were, you weren't football pitches or places very rarely where you could play. You, um, in our road in Greenways, it was called in Chelmsford, we, that three or four lads, <coughs> lived quite, quite close to it. It's a cul-de-sac, not a big long road, um, with a round, with a circle at the bottom. So there wasn't a great deal of traffic anyway, A, because it was a, a cul-de-sac, and B, because there weren't as many cars, no, there as many cars in those days. So uh, we played acro- across the str- across the road, um, and you used to have to learn to chip the ball above the pavement to hit the uh, the goal at the back. The goal was about a, a two-foot-wide semicircular where the tree where a tree was planted, that was the goal. And so it's a three of us play football. But amongst those houses where we lived and played, there was a, a family and a, a boy that didn't play football. Um, I think he he was interested in uh, fl- flying, you know, and gl- making balsa wood gliders. And uh, nice guy, but just didn't, didn't play football. And on this particular garden, uh, of course, occasionally the ball finished up there. And crazily enough, they... Um, took us to court and uh, we actually got fined this is absolutely true we got fined a pound for kicking the ball in the neighbour's garden astounding when you think about it isn't it mm. and when you there's nowhere else to play apart from the street and uh, we were actually 
but that that happens. That happens. You'll, you'll hear stories. We see stories of neighbours falling out over different things. You see those those stories every day. But that was certainly a true story. Absolutely, absolutely true. And during that time, um, who was it during childhood that you really looked up to that you thought was an inspiration to you and made you really think that going into professional sport was going to be the route for you? Well, my father was obviously the, the, the biggest inspiration for me because he was an ex-player. He, he played uh, lower down for Oldham Rochdale. We actually moved south from Manchester. We lived, we lived, I was born in Ashton under Lyne. We actually moved south to Chelmsford when I was pr- probably I was the eldest of three when I was probably about seven or eight into this particular street uh, called Greenways. And he, what he did with me, I think was a, a big influence going back to that third gold in the World Cup in many years in the back garden. And when we moved on to it, we moved up market to a council house somewhere in Chelmsford. And he would have me in the back garden teaching me to kick with my left foot. And so I, at that time, and even today, it's, it's, uh, you don't see that many players that are uh, completely two-footed, and I was. Maybe not as two-footed as Bobby Charlton. Even Jack Charlton, his brother, didn't know which was his best foot. He, he was fantastic. But I was pretty pretty um, um, two-footed. And a lot of the hat-tricks I scored were one right, one left, and a header. So um, he, had, he had a huge influence. I wasn't, I wasn't a child, although I had a football, footballing father, I wasn't a child whose father pushed him into being a footballer. He, he um, and what happened with my, my story is a friend of my father, I know the guy's name, called Jock Redfern, unbeknownst to me, he wrote to two clubs uh, for a trial. He wrote to Arsenal and he wrote to West Ham United when I was just after school leaving age. Uh, West Ham uh, replied, they asked me to come for a trial um, I went for a trial with them, and uh, they saw something in me and took me on the what was called the ground staff then, uh, almost at school in the age. And uh, so I wasn't necessarily thinking I've got to go into football. It's just that that's how it, how it happened. Uh, although I enjoyed football and I was pretty reasonably good, there was no big focus on me uh, as a great schoolboy player. Nobody was scouting me or uh, you know writing to my parents saying, come and have a trial at this club or that club. Uh, but a friend of my father um, wrote the letter. So that's, that's how it happened. The problem I had during those early years, I enjoyed cricket as well, and I was messing about, as I, I kindly put it, between the two sports, which was hugely detrimental to me in my early, early development, either as a cricketer or either as a footballer. And it wasn't until Ron Greenwood um, miraculously tried me. I was a midfield player then, or centre-half at school. Um, he... Uh, tell him I'm going to try you up front. He put me up front in the game and then my, my whole football career and life changed dramatically. And I suppose as well, what might have also done it for football as opposed to cricket was that fateful match uh, for Essex over in Egberth against Lancashire, wasn't it? Yes, a lot of people know that. Uh, one game, uh, one game, the sort of messing about between the two. I had one first-class game for Essex, as you said, Egberth in, um, in Liverpool. And I think I got naught and, and naught not out, I think. So, I mean, we won the game, funny. I filled a couple of catches, but uh, Essex actually won the game. The um, V Lancashire up, up in their territory. But that was that was a real problem for me. I think I could have done some advice maybe earlier to say, make your mind up. But when you look back, when even today, cricket goes through till, what, September? Whereas football starts in July, so there's a huge overlap. And I'm still playing cricket until September, missing pre-season early games 
for those two or three years, extremely detrimental to me doing well at one or the other. Uh, until Ron Green would just put me up front and that was it. And from a standing start, I think my first season around, I think September, October, I, I played my first game up front against Liverpool. And I think I played about 23, 24 games, uh, no, 27, 28 games and scored 14 goals, like one in two from a standing start for a, mm. a midfield player. So um, quite changed dramatically. Um, that was 60, 62, 63 season, the three years before the World Cup. And when we think about leadership in football, the role of a goalkeeper, of course, not related to your own career, is to essentially build from the back and command this penalty area. And one goalkeeper that you played with, not just for England, but also for Stoke City in the later years in your career, was Gordon Banks. I have to confess, as a boyhood Port Vale supporter, I am relieved that incredible talents like yourself and Gordon are no longer occupying the dressing room there. And I did have the fortune of meeting Gordon when I was a young boy as well. But what was Gordon like as a leader on the field? Well, first of all, he, he was a great, uh, two things for Gordon. He was a, a great keeper. Um, I would still say the greatest English keeper we've ever had uh, and one of the best keepers in the world. Um, absolutely fantastic. Funny enough, I didn't realise, it's funny how you look at, I see when Gordon passed away, naturally, you know, sadly, um, a few months ago, and obviously it's showing a lot of videos of Banksy, the programs about Banksy and the great saves he made and the save against Pelé and so on. But I didn't realise how um, athletic he was, uh, how quick he was, athletic, um, springing forward to smother balls, and not just tipping balls. Agility-wise, he was absolutely fantastic. But as a character, he was a joker. He was a, a very kind, very mild-mannered, lovely lovely man, the nicest guy you can possibly wish to meet. But he was a joke. He always had a, a joke for you. Every time you met sometime, he'd you, have a new joke. And uh, people um, talk about him and who are close to him and remember what a what a, um, a joke he was. And they're the two things that really stick out for, Man- for Banksy. And we were very lucky, uh, very lucky, of course, to have that kind of and you need that kind of quality um, as a world-class player. When you win a World Cup, you need four or five players, which we were very fortunate to have in our team. Um, uh, Banks is one of the world-class players, along with Bobby Moore and, and Bobby Charlton. Uh, Jimmy Greaves didn't play with a world-class player, in, but in the squad, and Ray Wilson, our left-back, I'd always argue, was a world-class player. So you need that kind of quality initially if you're going to be successful in winning a World Cup from world-class players. And Banks, was up there, w- w- not with the best, the best for me. And another thing from during your days at Stoke City as well was that a talented but then troubled young midfielder by the name of Alan Hudson first joined the uh, the club around uh, the early 70s. And I know that you were asked to take him in as a lodger to provide him with a stable home during his spell there by then-manager Tony Waddington. Now, I've spoken to a great many directors and executives on this programme before, and all of them describe trust as being a key cornerstone of leadership. How did it feel for you knowing that Waddington trusted you to that degree to ask that of you? Well, I was extremely flattered. It was a huge compliment that he saw me as a, and of course over the years, hopefully that, that has uh, come out. That's important that uh, you have those kind of qualities as a player that A, he saw when I was at West Ham and B, obviously he acquired me to play at Stoke City. So I was, I was initially first fairly surprised I think it, and certainly my wife was fairly surprised when I when I said I need her permission for 
for me to um, uh, allow Alan Hutton to stay with us in that, those early periods. But what he saw, of course, in me was, uh, which is, I can see in myself, I was, I was a very disciplined person, a very disciplined player, which you have to be. I didn't really have, I would say, the qualities of the world-class players like the Bobby Charles and the Jimmy Greaves and the Bobby Moores. So uh, you need to have bring all the other characteristics to be successful at, at that level, to compete in their level. And discipline was one of them. And, and um, obviously, Tony Watkins saw that. And if he wanted to put, he trusted me that I was disciplined enough hopefully push some of my discipline into Alan Hudson, which we did. And um, in those early six months and year, a couple of years, he was come up a bit heavier from Chelsea. He lost a bit of weight. And uh, although he was a little bit indisciplined himself, hence they needed him to, to stay with me, what he was was a fantastic player. He is, uh, was, he is one of the, the, the most fantastic players I think I've come across the, across but not hit the best because I think he was a certain uh, slightly bit of ill discipline within his, his general life. And you need at the top, and I'm talking at the top being, being an England player, but I compare him purely on ability compared with ability up in the France Beckenbauer mold mm. without any shadow of a doubt. He, he was that good. So it was a bit of fun and enjoyable times uh, getting uh, serving Alan Hudson the cups of tea about 8 o'clock at night when we had our tea at our home for those uh, those few months, and I think he, he was a, a big help to uh, getting Alan back on track and performing brilliantly for the club. And following on from your days with the uh, the Potters, you went on, of course, to play football in Ireland and the United States before the end of your career. Did you feel that the dressing room and indeed leadership culture at those clubs differed from perhaps what you've been used to back in England? Um. Well, I think Ireland was just still well, with Cork Celtic, so it's hard to judge and make any comparisons. And of course, in in America, it was the early days of, um, of football in America, uh, and I thoroughly enjoyed my time at Seattle. So it's difficult to make a uh, a comparison. I think I was fortunate at West Ham that we it was a great time for the club, and I was fortunate to play with Stoke City uh, for three years, and it was a fantastic time for that particular club. They won, of course, the. Uh, the the League Cup before I went there. Mm. Sadly, they knocked us out in the semi-final. So it was a, a marvellous time for, for that particular club. And very close, we actually, I think we played Ajax in, in the, in the following year in, in Europe. I think we only lost on, on a goal over two, over the two games against Ajax. So it was a great time for the club. So I'm very fortunate to have played uh, for, for those two clubs. Only a short spell at West Brom, of course, but I think, uh, as I always jokingly say, I think I was past my... Uh, sell by date then. Um, West Brom was a fantastic club, but I was I wasn't at my best, and I thought it was time to retire, which I did. And Johnny Giles was in charge then. I think uh, West West Brom actually got up that year, but I made very little contribution to that success the club had. So um, yes, it, uh, the, the American experience was just fantastic. I never thought of long term being over there. That was a, a, a brilliant few months with my wife and. Um, uh, two daughters and my wife and she was uh, pregnant with her third daughter over there so that was that was a good time it's completely different Ireland was just a just a I always joke about Ireland I was there for about I think a month I think it was and I enjoyed the experience and I earned a few quid and I think it paid for, for the kitchen in one of my houses back in England new kitchen <laughs> So it certainly went really well I suppose in the waning days of um, your career um, was it humbling that 
you realised that people were beginning to actually look up to you and be inspired by you as a legend as in perhaps the same way that you were looking to the likes of Bobby Moore earlier on in your career? Yeah, so I think it's, I think the that kind of, uh, whatever the word, correct word is, I don't know, being looked at and, and revered sort of comes maybe maybe longer, maybe in longer, not so, so immediately after you finish playing, but in the long term when, um, uh, and I always joke with people, introduce me either to other people or introduce me on stage as a legend. And, and I always joke and say, you, you only start being called a legend when you're over 70. And I think the, the whatever the word is, I'm not sure, adulation or recognition or whatever, it sort of happens and you think more about it or it happens and occurs more in later years. Not not certainly, um, I felt during the time after I finished playing or managing or playing for England during my, during my football career. And I think I, I went into business for 20 years. I don't think anybody looked necessarily looked at me when I was in business as necessarily a legend or somebody they could look up. So I, I felt that kind of attitude probably has happened in, in my later years, probably. For those younger generations, just lastly, Sir Jeff, before we do wrap things up, um, for people who are aspiring to become leaders in business, politics, sport, or indeed any walk of life, if you could offer any advice to them based upon your experience, what advice would you give them? Simple advice in, in, in a sentence is really, I learned a lot from Alf Ramsey. He was a, he was a boss. I think a boss sometimes has, has natural characteristics. You can learn about management or management courses. But there's certain characteristics when the successful bosses is, is within them to start with. But one of the things I learned from Alf Ramsey, which I've taken into my, my business life and even my, you know, talking to my family life, if they're involved in business, is when you're managing people, you manage them as a group. Anybody that doesn't want to be part of that group, you find is, is, is backing against what you want to achieve as a boss, you move them out. And I think that's the simple, one of the most simple uh, lessons I've learned during the Alf Ramsey period. Even some of the great players I felt should have been in the squad, possibly at, at the time, without mentioning names. Um, and you hear stories about this player not, you know, completely complying with everything, and they're, they're left out, or they're not even in the squad. And I felt that was, even, and even some with great ability, I, I think probably didn't make it. And I think a lot of it stems down to they didn't want to be, they wanted to be, you know, a lone champion, successful person, didn't want to be part of, of the group. So that, that for me is the, the key message, the single key message I would pass on to anybody who wants to manage a group of people in any walk of life. It ties in very nicely with a quote from one Nelson Mandela, in fact, that surround yourself with people who are better than you are in some ways. And I think that is incredibly sound advice indeed. Yes, it is. Very good. Good advice. Yes. So, Jeff. Thank you ever so much for joining us on the uh, the programme this morning. It's been an absolute pleasure having you with us to discuss your life, career and leadership. And it would be a pleasure to welcome you back on the programme in future to discuss further. Pleasure. Thank you. Enjoy, enjoy being part of the programme. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you ever so much for your time again. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I have been your host, Matthew O'Neill. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, other guests, or any other person therein associated.